0: Our New Testament reading today is in John chapter 10. As We continue reading through the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, we pick up at verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And our sermon text is in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. The Apostle John continues, whose gospel we just read, by the way, now continues to Tell us about the vision he was given of heaven and of the future. Verse 11, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone in this room today that has still yet to bow the knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. May this day be the greatest day of their life. May this day be the day of their salvation. Open blind eyes to the wonder of Jesus take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh that love the Lord Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep. Be glorified in our time together today in your word. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our corporate heart will be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. So good to see all of you today. We continue with our study of the name of Jesus. Had a long intro last week, so today we're going to dive right in. No long intro. Intro. We're doing two names. They were both mentioned in verse 16 of Revelation 19. King of kings, Lord of lords. Very convenient that they come back to back in the alphabet, K and L. So that worked out really good, didn't it? King of kings, Lord of lords. Let's start first with King of Kings. Remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary, the Virgin Mary, when he came to her with the announcement that she was going to give birth to the Messiah in Luke chapter 1. Part of what he said was this beginning at verse 30, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the lord god will give to him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end in other words gabriel tells mary you're going to conceive by the holy spirit you will give birth to a son and your son will be the promised king. He will be the Messiah. He will be the anointed one, the king of all kings. So let's consider three aspects of that kingship this morning. First of all, according to Psalm 24, he's the king of glory, king of glory. Psalm 24, beginning at verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So, what, five times the title's mentioned, king of glory? As the king of glory... Jesus is is beautiful, resplendent, majestic, and absolute and perfect magnificence radiates from him. As the old song said, he is beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension. Like nothing ever seen or heard. Beloved, he is totally and absolutely worthy of every ounce of our heartfelt worship, honor, praise, and thanksgiving. And every fiber of who we are as we present to him our bodies as a living sacrifice. The question for you this morning as you prepare to come to this table is Are you reflecting that glory? Are you reflecting the king of glory? We are left on this planet to do that. If salvation was just to get us to heaven, the moment we were saved, we would die. God would take us. But we're left here to be his ambassadors, to reflect his glory second aspect of this kingship the king eternal he's the king eternal first timothy 1:17 calls him the king of the ages with other translations saying king eternal in other words he's always been the king he's the king now he will always be the king he reigned in eternity past He's reigning now. He will reign forever. Isn't that what Handel's Messiah tells us? King of kings, Lord of lords, and he will reign forever. He's seated on the throne at the right hand of God, one with the Father forever. Every power and every ruler of darkness trembles under his feet and one day every knee will bow. He's the king of the ages. He's the eternal king. He's always reigned. He's reigning now. He will reign forever. Thirdly, he's the king who conquers. He's the king who conquers. The catechism question asks, how does Christ execute the office or ministry of king? You know, Reformed theologians like to Highlight the three offices of Jesus: prophet, priest, and king. Okay, we've talked about high priest. We'll get to prophet later when we get to the letter P today. You know the, the 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 catechism question: How does he? Since we're talking about king, how does Christ execute this office of king? And the answer is in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies so yes he's the king who conquers he conquers our sin by taking it upon himself at the cross we've been crucified with him our sin has been vanquished he conquers death by rising from the dead he conquers satan by crushing his head just as god said he would in the garden after the fall Listen to a couple of texts from the precious Word of God in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13-15. to 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's a very special text for me. I was saved under this text preached by the Reverend Mark Rutland before he uh, went to the assemblies of God when he was a Methodist traveling revival preacher. And he came to a little church in Lithonia, Georgia and preached for a week and up he preached on this text, and I'll never forget the title of the sermon. It was the sermon I was saved under, Christ's Cosmic Chain Gang. He disarmed the rules and thars and put them to open shame. Open shame by triumphing over them in him. After hearing that message from this text, God gave me new life. opened my eyes to see Jesus in a whole new light. And I've been growing ever since, slowly, slowly, yeah, very slowly sometimes, but surely. And so this text will always be very special to me. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, we read this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy, conquer, subdue, vanquish that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery beloved our conquering king has done it all he's done it all for us saving us from sin delivering us from the judgment of death and setting us free from the bondage of the devil, and the evidence is in his resurrection. Christ is king, dear friend. Christ is king, beloved church family, no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what it looks like around us, no matter how loony it gets, no matter how chaotic it gets, no matter how anti-God it gets, No matter how bold uh, the God-haters get, Jesus is king. And he's coming again. And he will consummate his rule fully and finally. And I pray today that you're on the right side now because we don't know when that day is. I pray that you're on the King's side now. If not, I got some good news for you. Today's the day of salvation. God's grace reaches out to gather in his elect. I pray you're among that group. So Jesus is king of kings. Secondly, he's Lord of lords. He's Lord of lords. Jesus is Lord was the earliest creed of the church. I want to camp on this one this morning because it's very, very directly connected to our salvation. Now, admittedly, you could probably say all the names of Jesus are connected to our salvation. But I think this one stands apart because of verses like Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which tells us that this confession of the lordship of Jesus is necessary For our salvation. Romans 10 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is one of the key verses of Scripture. Let's ponder it together today. Seriously, let's go deep with this one this morning. Note the vital connection between the internal dynamic that takes place when God grants faith. Remember, faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, faith is not of yourselves; it's a gift of God. Faith, Faith with which you believe is a gift of God. And when God grants that gift, the heart believes. A synonymous phrase from the Scripture would be the stony heart is taken out and a new flesh, heart of flesh a believing heart is put in. So that's the internal action that comes with the gift of faith. The heart believes resulting in the external action the mouth confesses. Okay, Got the connection? The heart believes, the mouth confesses. For the reborn believer, this is what we call the, the heart mouth connection. And it's a vital connection. The heart believes, the mouth confesses. That's just the way it works. This is why God gave us hearts and mouths. This is what they were made to do. New hearts believe, mouths now ruled by that new heart confess what the heart believes the new heart believes in jesus and the mouth connected to that heart proclaim him new hearts believe the truth of god's word and mouths connected to that new heart speak that truth in love the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart I'm going by a weak memory here, but I think that's Luke 6:45. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. It's a direct connection. You cannot get away from it. It's a vital heart-mouth connection. Warning. The mouth can confess without the heart believing. We call it uh, talking the talk, but not walking the walk. This can happen. The mouth can confess without the heart believing. As a former youth minister for decades, I've seen this happen, sadly, many times. The mouth said the right things for a little while, but the heart never believed because they wound up walking away. They never belonged to Jesus. The heart never believed. You don't get saved and then in your human sovereignty decide to walk away from the sovereign God of the universe. That just doesn't happen and the Bible doesn't teach that. So the mouth can confess, you can do the game, you can play the game, you can, you can say the right words, you can sound great. The mouth can confess without the heart believing. Jesus spoke of it in Mark 7, 6, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Because Jesus knows our heart. We, we can fool a lot of, we can maybe fool everybody in our human realm of, of, of influence, with our falsely confessing mouth, but we never and and won't ever fool Jesus. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and it always was. It wasn't that it was once mine, and then they decided, they overruled... the omnipotent power of God and decided to quit being a Christian. That doesn't happen, brother. I I, I can't say that strongly enough. That doesn't happen. So, we understand. You probably know people, have known people like this. The mouth can confess without the heart believing. But the question I want to examine this morning more diligently is, can the heart believe? believe without the mouth confessing? Can the heart believe without the mouth confessing? Going back to the vital heart-mouth connection of the true born-again person. Can the heart believe without the mouth confessing? Well, let's go first to what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Well, he said something like this in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So what is Jesus saying there? He's saying if we don't acknowledge him before people... He won't acknowledge us before God. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty serious to me. Especially since the only way we're going to stand before God at Judgment Day is if we are standing in Christ, in His righteousness. As we've studied earlier in this series, at the very beginning of it, Jesus is our advocate. He's the one who speaks for us in heaven. He's our defense attorney in the court of heaven and if he is not acknowledging us or defending us due to our standing in him then we are in deep deep peril so you say well but the the verse you read the word was acknowledge and we're talking about the word confess well does acknowledge mean the same thing as confess yeah it really does In fact, it's the same Greek word, homologeo, to say the same thing. The word means to profess, to confess allegiance, to make an emphatic assertion, to express openly one's allegiance to a proposition or person. Doesn't sound wishy-washy at all, does it? Doesn't sound sound namby-pamby or milk toast or secret agent-like at all. No, we're, it, we're out there. We're, we're acknowledging with our mouth. We're confessing. We're proclaiming Him. Our, our memory verse last month was what? We proclaim Him. Proclaim, proclaim, mouth. Speaking from what the heart believes. So confess is the first key word in our text, and it's what we do with our mouth. Second key word is believe, and that's what we do with our heart. The Greek word for believe is is a word that goes way beyond just mentally agreeing to something. As used in the Bible in connection with saving faith, it involves the element of trust. Not just the mere acknowledgement of existence. Believing in God doesn't mean we just believe He exists. Salvific belief means we are trusting him. We not only believe that he, he exists and that he's real and that he rules, but we're trusting him. We're banking everything on him, everything we are. We believe in our heart, our new heart that has been given to us through the new birth, and the resulting fruit from this new heart that will come, it will happen, involves confessing, acknowledging, proclaiming, openly, openly, not secretly, openly, declaring emphatically our allegiance to Jesus as Lord. In other words, we are always ready to do that. The Bible does not instruct us to start every conversation we have with people with that, okay? So don't start panicking on me. But it does say to be ready. I think it's 1 Peter 3, 15, 16, around in there. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. (laughs) Always being ready to give a defense, to confess, to acknowledge, to proclaim, To give a defense for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Like speaking the truth in love, right? Love, gentleness, reverence. Yes, always being ready. And if there was ever a day to not always be ready, it is this day, beloved. You are here for such a time as this. No no more clamming up. No more clamming up when the opportunities arise. I know you're getting tired of this phrase, but the silent majority of days are over, okay? They're over. they got to be over. We're ready. Our heart believes, and we're ready to confess. We're ready to acknowledge Jesus as Lord before men. We're ready to proclaim him with all that we are, striving to make our kids, our children, our youth. The strong disciples in of, of Jesus, we're proclaiming Him, and not just in, in the walls of the church. We're proclaiming Him out there when the opportunities arise. You know, when somebody asks you, you know, why why, why are you always so joyful? Why are you always so happy? We we, we, we got to get away from. Well, I, I'm just having a good day, and I'm just having. No, I'm I'm happy because Jesus is Lord. He's my King. He's coming back to get me. Are you ready for that? The heart-mouth connection. The mouth speaks from that which fills or controls the heart. You can pretty much tell by what's controlling a person's heart, by what they speak about the most when the opportunities arise. And and note, please note, these are not two separate actions, okay? They're not not two separate steps to salvation. It's not that we believe and are half-saved, and then we confess, and then we're fully saved. No, they're together. They're a package deal. They, They go together. In the wonderful, glorious transaction of salvation, God gives us a new heart that believes that Jesus is the crucified, risen Messiah who died and paid the penalty for our sins, resulting in our total absolute, unwavering trust in him as our Savior and our verbal lifestyle confession of him as supreme Lord and master of our lives. So dear church family, here's, here's the bottom line of all of us I've said. So far, under Lord of Lords segment here, being saved, being saved, being born again, being a Christian, being converted, being redeemed, whatever term or phraseology you want to use, being delivered from sin, being rescued from the wrath of God, etc., etc., means living openly and emphatically and verbally under the lordship of christ if there was ever a time and day to understand that this is the time and day okay i wish i could be more emphatic about that without sounding too aggressive i wish i could We've got to understand this. We've got to understand this heart-mouth connection because our eternal, eternal life hangs in the balance. Because if we're not professing and acknowledging, Jesus says he's not going to acknowledge us. That's his words. Not, not my words. That's his words. Now, oh man, just 1130. That's awesome. Uh, what I would like to do for the remainder of our time is to set forth some suggestions by which we can examine our lives. This may be the longest self-examination before coming to the table that we've ever had. Okay? The question we are dealing with this morning is the question that Romans 10.9 calls for. Have I truly confessed Jesus as Lord? Is Jesus the Lord of my life? Okay? Okay? That might be the, what, right up there with one of the most important questions of the universe. Because it's, it's vital for your salvation. You don't do what I thought you could do for a big portion of my life. You, you don't accept Jesus as Savior and, and punch your ticket to heaven. And then later on, you know, when you're through sowing your wild oats or or having fun or whatever it is, uh, later on, make him Lord. That's not a biblical notion at all. We don't accept Jesus as Savior. We're fortunate and blessed by the grace of God that he accepts us, okay? We confess him as Lord. That's the biblical phraseology. We've always said here we want to speak biblically. We want to think biblically. So we've got to flush out of our system some of these non-biblical phrases that we grew up with. Accepting Jesus as Savior is not a biblical phrase. We confess him as Lord, and then God in his goodness to us throws Savior in with the deal. That's why it's such good news. So we're going to proceed now for the remainder of our time in a twofold manner. First, we're going to look at, and don't panic when you look at the sermon sheet. I'm going to try to be brief with all the points there, okay? I know there's a lot of points on your seed saver, but don't panic, okay? We're going to go through these fairly quickly, but I will comment on on each one of them, okay? But we're going to do it in a twofold manner. First, we're going to go through a list of signs that indicate that Jesus just might not be the Lord of your life. And then we're going to flip the coin and do... The positive signs, signs that indicate that there's a good chance that he is. That's good. And, and, and let me say right up front, we're all growing. Every believer in here, we're all growing in these signs. As I, as I shared in the new member class today, none of us ever arrive. We, 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 we're, we're not, we're, we're not going to arrive. We're all growing in these positive signs, Okay. And some were stronger in than others, some were weaker in than others. So please know that, okay As I say about our church covenant, it's not a, uh, uh, an ungodly demand for perfection. We're all striving, we're all growing, okay? But these are some pretty, pretty strong signs of whether or not you've, you've done Romans 10:9. You've confessed Jesus as Lord. okay So signs that might indicate that Jesus is not Lord of my life Ah, all right here we go number one uh jesus might not be lord when uh, man-centeredness trumps god-centeredness when man-centeredness trumps god-centeredness a noted historian made this observation comparing uh modern day church with with the older days with with the historical days and he said something like this he said before the good of man consisted ultimately in glorifying god now the glory of god consists in the good of man before man lived to glorify god now god lives to serve man okay god i've come to you what 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 you got for me what will you do for me in Table Talk several issues ago, Burke Parsons said this, self-centered theology sees man as big and God as small. It is by nature non-covenantal, non-familial, and non-ecclesiastical. Okay, let me try to translate those big words. I had to, really re- I had to wrestle with this one, okay? But it, what basically uh, uh, Dr. Parsons is saying is you can't be living under the Lordship of Christ when you're thinking like this because... Jesus was the mediator of the new covenant. He emphasized spiritual family over physical family, okay? And the church is the bride for which he died, okay? Also in table talk, Harry Reader goes so far as to say that the self-centered person has in practice rewritten the catechism. The first, que- he says this, the first question of our new catechism is now, what is the chief end of God? Answer, to love me and make me happy. That attitude reflects someone living under the lordship of me and not under the lordship of Christ. Secondly, Jesus might not be Lord when relativism trumps Objective authority. When relativism trumps objective authority, in other words, we're doing the judges' two twenty-one twenty-five thing. are we're, we're doing what's ri- I'm doing what's right in my own eyes. I'm the final arbiter of what is right. When I, when I, I have my own personal truth, well, that may be true for you, but not for me. I Have my own personal truth, and 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 I have. What's true for me and woe to the person who suggests that when my beliefs conflict with the Bible, I'm the one that's wrong. Mm, No, no, woe to that person. When whatever I believe becomes right for me, then I've become my own Lord. Because it certainly isn't Jesus who laid down objective truths in this book for us to submit to and to follow. In their book, uh, Name Above All Names, probably be the book of the month for next month, uh, Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson, two guys I really respect and like, teamed up and wrote this book, and they said in there, they said, uh, for example, I have no right to develop convictions or practice a lifestyle Contrary to our king's word. That is why I cannot, for example, invent new views of marriage and let me add or even be sympathetic or silent to them. Or, they say, re-engineer human sexuality because I bow beneath the rule of the king. The king's already determined that. He's already determined what marriage is. He created this male and female, a set. The kings ruled on that, did not leave it open to our uh, modifications. Third, Jesus might not be Lord when pragmatism, you know, doing what works, Trumps the truth of the Bible when pragmatism trumps the truth of the Bible. In other words, when I pick and choose truths as as if I were, were in a cafeteria line, looking for what works for me. Okay, okay, you like uh, oh for God so loved the world yeah I'll, I'll, I'll take that one uh, chosen before the foundation of the world nah not so much there I I'll make the final decision on my salvation uh, you know you know. Going through the Bible like that. Uh, Accept others. Well, no, God, you don't know what they did to me. uh, So I can't really buy into that one. Uh, Forgive. No, no, they were were really mean. Uh, So just, you know, just picking and choosing the verses we like. Um, When whatever works becomes our plan of action, then. We know we're on the wrong path. When I think that if obeying Jesus as my Lord will not make me happy or successful or wealthy, then it must not be right to do that because after all, God wants me to be happy. When the serious pursuit of truth is replaced by the pursuit of personal happiness, Jesus might not be your Lord. Number four, when feeling trump's pleasing god when feeling when feelings trump pleasing god or or when psychology becomes more important than theology when sadness becomes the great enemy of my life rather than sin when feeling good about myself becomes the number 1 priority And the Bible becomes a devotional guide to help me to get in touch with my feelings. Jesus might not be the Lord of your life when those things are happening. Number five, when opinion trumps clear biblical teaching. When opinion trumps clear biblical teaching. We're not talking about the the difficult areas, you know, the the gray area that where you you've got, you know, strong interpretations that maybe conflict, and one day we will we will see clearly. And no, we're, we're not talking about those, okay? But we're we're talking about clear Bible teachings, okay? When they're trumped by opinions, then Jesus just he he might not be. The boss of your life. He might not be the Lord. When the yeah but, yeah but, yeah but attitude dominates our heart, you you, you give the person the scripture, the clear scripture. Yeah but, but you know. When when we refuse to build our lives on the rock of the Word of God, opting instead for the sand of our personal opinions, when I try to, this this is rampant, and you know it is. That's why we got to (laughs) speak. When, we try to, when people try to rewrite the Bible to fit modern views or play fast and loose with the biblical historical narrative, attempting to explain away critical biblical narratives, especially like Genesis 1 through 11. Number six, when the quitter's mentality trumps steadfast perseverance, When I too easily throw in the towel, not wanting to go through the self-discipline or self-sacrifice of perseverance. When there's no unrelenting commitment, no forbearing with one another, no love that bears all things. Jesus might not be the Lord of my life. Number seven, when the, the right to know, the right to know trumps submission to mystery. When I'm always wanting pat answers, classic example of this, gosh, what? Let's see, 80 80, 40 God, 40 years ago, I can't believe it. 40 years ago, I stood out in the uh, parking lot of a, uh, a Baptist church in Lathonia, Georgia, I'd just been called to be the youth minister at that church, and a a parent approached me in the parking lot and uh, instructed me or exhorted me or pretty much commanded me uh, to give them something tangible. Translation, she wanted pat answers. (laughs) She wanted automatic cure-alls to every problem and struggle that young people have and that we all have. Sometimes that ain't coming. Sometimes they're not there. What does Romans 11, 33 33 say? God's ways are inscrutable. How unsearchable are your ways? Isaiah 55, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. When the right to know, you just got to know or you're not in on this. You just got to have the answer. When that mentality trumps submission to the mystery of the word of God, then Jesus might not be Lord. We, We need the Job mentality. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I don't know what in the heck's going on right now. And it may wind up with me being dead. But I'm trusting God. I'm going out trusting God. So, let's flip the coin. Okay, let's get positive, okay? And and let's be clear. The negative signs could lead to something positive, right? Right? There's no good news without bad news, right? Okay? So, let's... Look at the signs, some signs. What, what, what's our rule for lists? No list is exhaustive. You can always add to it, okay? All right, so here's some signs that I've latched on to that, that, that are good signs. That point to the, the truth that, yes, you've confessed Jesus is Lord. Number one, when there's growth in obeying Christ's word without delay or argument. Growth, keyword growth. Every one of these keywords is going to be growth, okay? When there's growth in obeying Christ's word without delay or argument. The yeah buts, the excuses, the spells of disobedience are becoming fewer and farther between. My agenda is decreasing and Christ's agenda is increasing. As someone has said, Quote, if Jesus is the king or the Lord, you can't come to him negotiating. You lay your sword at the king's feet and say, Command me. Command me. Or, like we said on Education Sunday, teach me. Teach me because the enemies abound. Number two, when commitment to fulfilling God's will for my life, or when there is a commitment for fulfilling God's will for my life, even before I know what he requires of me. It's like the plaque that's, uh, I can't remember who it was, somebody had in their pastoral office that said, uh, the answer is yes, Lord. Now, what's the question? (laughs) I'm... Jesus is probably our Lord when we're committed to obey before we even know what God calls us to do. In other words, we've presented our body a living sacrifice. And I'm learning, and we're learning, not to place qualifications on my obedience. Okay, I'll obey in this area, but when, if it gets to here, now, nah, got to step down, got to step aside. Nope, nope. We're, we're committed to obeying. Before we even know what God's calling us to. The full ramifications of it. Number three. There's growth in serving others whether I feel like it or not. There's growth in serving others whether I feel like it or not. In other words, we're learning what it means to consider others more important than ourselves. As God is growing in us the mind of Christ who considered himself nothing and made himself a servant being obedient to death on a cross, we're slowly discovering what it meant when Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. For the joy set before us, we're, we're going to do our turn in the nursery. For the joy set before me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay after a little bit and set up in the back. I mean, th- those are trivial things I know compared to Jesus enduring the cross. I, realize, I understand that. But, but we're not Jesus, right? And we got to start somewhere, right? For the joy set before, I, I'll, be, I'll be the deacon that, that's, that stays till 9 o'clock on Wednesday night to lock up because I, I love watching these people fellowship and talk after their Bible studies. Got to start somewhere. And those are very trivial, very, very simple. We're growing serving others no matter how we feel, whether we feel like it or not. Number four, there's a joyful acknowledgement of Christ's ownership of my life and possessions. Jesus is probably your Lord when this is happening. When you, it's all yours, God, it's all yours joyfully as paul said what what do i have that i did not receive second corinthians 4 7 maybe what do i have that i did not receive the breath you just took a gift a gift from the lord undeserved gift the wages of sin is death so we all deserve hell right now that's where we deserve to be right now right now But we're here, alive, breathing with the gift of breath that God just gave you. If you're not saved, you've still got a chance. He's let you live long enough to confess his son as Lord. Why not today? We're not our own. We're not our own, beloved. We've been bought with a price. And the person living under the Lordship of Christ joyfully and gladly acknowledges that, confesses that, speaks of that with great joy. Number five, Jesus is probably Lord uh, when you're when pleasing God exceeds my desire to please others, including myself. (laughs) Jesus is probably Lord. When pleasing God exceeds my desire to please others, including and especially myself. We're slowly learning the joy that comes from striving to please God instead of people. As Ed Wells said in his great book, you know, "God, God is big, people are small. Doesn't mean they're unimportant. Doesn't mean we ignore people. It just means we have our priorities right. Pleasing God is more important than, and I hope by now, those of you that have been with us a long time, you know how much I love you as my church family, but pleasing God is more important than pleasing you. I'm confident that 98% of you understand that and know that and want that. You want that. It's why you're here or one of the reasons you're here. Possibly, maybe. Maybe I'm thinking too much. Maybe I'm out on a limb there and about to, it's about to break and I'm going to fall down and bust my head open. But anyway, uh, a solid church wants their elders to please God over them. That's the principle. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. I always get, I, I, Fleur would get in trouble when I get off my notes, right? Okay. But I think you understand what I'm trying to say. Number six, there's growth in finding all my joy and satisfaction in the person of Jesus. When the smoke is all cleared, that's all all that really matters. My regular prayer has become Psalm 90 verse 14. Satisfy me, O Lord, with your tender mercies, that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. Jesus said he, he, he's given us his joy so that our joy may be full. And the person living in the lordship of Christ is learning to find all their joy and satisfaction in Jesus alone. And everything else is, is, is gravy. It's beautiful. Yes, yes, we, we love each other. We want to be together. We enjoy each other's presence and each other's company. But that's a, that's a connected gift to finding all of our satisfaction in Jesus because one day these people may leave. I mean, we've experienced that in this church. The people leave. People move. People go, go away for good reasons and bad reasons. Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us. And the person living under his lordship, that's all they really need. Ultimate, ultimately, ultimately. Yes, secondarily, I know, I hear you, we need each other, that's why we're putting a body, yes, yes. We're talking ultimate right now. Okay. We read about Paul, right? There were times when he was alone, right? People deserted him right and left but the lord never did he always tells us that right the lord never did and that's where his joy was and that's where his satisfaction was because he knew that was permanent sadly human fellowship and companionship they're not always permanent we've all experienced that but Jesus is his and for the person living under his lordship that's enough that's enough. Uh, number seven, I'm learning to see my difficulties as God ordained tools in my spiritual growth. In other words, the murmuring and the complaining, and the worrying and the and all that, all those other activities that are connected to those are beginning to fade away. They're beginning to fade away. Romans eight twenty eight has become more than just a plaque on my wall. It's begun to saturate my bloodstream. Resting in the fact that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew He's being predestined, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And God uses those difficulties and those hardships and those heartbreaks and those painful times to make us more like Jesus. And the person living under the Lordship of Christ is good with that. Is okay with that. Doesn't mean we don't weep. Doesn't mean we don't hurt at times. But when we're living under Christ's Lordship, We can be thankful for the hurt in a very unique way because we know that God is using it for his glory and our ultimate good. And What's the ultimate good? What's the ultimate good? Becoming more like Jesus. So we're, we're, we're okay. We're okay with that. And then finally, number eight, Jesus is... There's a very, very good chance he's your Lord, and you've confessed it, when knowing him intimately is becoming the passion of your life. When knowing him intimately intimately is becoming the passion of your life. It's the heartbeat of Paul recorded in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. This is becoming our heart cry as an individual and as a corporate body, as a church. Paul said, but whatever gain I had... It was whatever I thought was good, really good, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and, listen, may share in his sufferings. That connects back to number seven. The sufferings that we go through that are making us more like him. So with Paul, we say, Lord, teach us what this means. Teach us what it means to share in your sufferings with with bottom line, ultimate joy, even when we're hurting like heck, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So. After looking at and examining that list, before we come to this table in just a minute, I ask you, are you confessing Jesus as the Lord of your life? Most crucial crucial question of the universe. Are you confessing Jesus as the Lord of your life? Does your life give evidence of that confession? Because remember, what was one of the first things we said? You can say it without it meaning anything you can say it without your heart really believing it so are you saying it and is your life giving evidence to back up the verbal confession is your lifestyle confession comprised of walk and talk flowing from the gift of a new believing heart A heart that believes Jesus is all all the wonderful things that the Bible says he is. And a heart that is properly submitting to and rejoicing in who he is. Trusting his gospel and trusting him to sanctify you day by day. Because, beloved, he truly is Lord. Lord. He truly is Lord. One day that truth is going to be starkly revealed to everybody that's ever existed. But the question for us today is, my, is this, is my life reflecting that truth now? Because dear unsafe person, you're not going to have the opportunity to reflect it in hell after you're compelled to bow the knee and confess with your mouth on that last day of judgment. So before we close now, still doing good. Before we close, let's make sure that we understand what I'm not exhorting the believers who are here, speaking to believers right now, let's make sure we understand what I'm not exhorting the believers who are here today to do. Number one, I'm not calling on you to rededicate your life, okay? I'm not calling on you to do that. I'm encouraging you to savor your life of union and communion with Jesus and trust him to complete the work that he has started if the work has been started. If it hasn't, then that's another question. You need to be born again. So I'm not calling you to rededicate your life. That's one of those old phrases from the old days that we're trying to flush out of our system. I'm exhorting you to savor the life you have with Jesus and trust Him to complete the work that He began in you. Secondly, I'm not calling on you to improve your performance Okay, I'm not calling on you to improve your performance. I'm exhorting you and encouraging you to be abundantly grateful and humbled by the performance of Jesus that saved you. And to work out that salvation in fear and trembling as he works in you for his good pleasure. That's the biblical thing that I'm calling you to do. And thirdly, please understand this. I'm not calling on you to make Jesus Lord, okay? He already is that. We do not make him Lord. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all names. That has already happened. He is Lord. And those who are confessing that with their life are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I love the way Begg and Ferguson put it in their book. I can't wait to get this into your hands next month. I hope that happens. Don't wait till next month. It's Name Above All Names by Alistair Begg, Sinclair Ferguson. Might have I might have recommended it before, but I couldn't find it in our list. But anyway, here's how they put it. This just nails it. Listen carefully now. I know you. It's it's end of the sermon, tending to drift off. Hang with me. Two more minutes. They said this. The phrase "Jesus is Lord." Okay, "Jesus is Lord" is not a statement listen about my attitude toward jesus it is a statement about who jesus is got that it's not it's not about our attitude toward jesus it's an agreement with what the bible says about who jesus is jesus is lord it's acknowledging a fact, not expressing an, an opinion or an attitude. Like what was the old phrase that people used to use back, I guess, the 80s or not? Oh, man, he's boss. That's boss. You know, that's really, meaning that was really, you know, did, it, is it, did I dream that of that? that was a phrase, right? Something was boss, right, Brian? It was boss, meaning it was re, well, that was really good. But that was just, you weren't saying that that thing or that person was the boss. You were just saying that was, that was your attitude toward the thing or you really liked that thing. That's not the way we use the phrase Jesus is Lord. We're confessing a fact. We're joyfully confessing a fact. And at the same time begging God to help us live our lives in a way that will back up that confession. So, final word, and I'm going to give it to Begin Ferguson again, same book. In that book, they, uh, I can't remember, I've got to go back and read the introduction, whether they went to Sunday school together or not, but in that book, they talk about their childhood Sunday school experiences a lot, and they talk about some of the Sunday school songs their teachers taught them, and they, it's beautiful to hear these grown, these mature Respected pastors, you know, probably, I think I'm the same age as Begg. I think we're about 70, but about 70 anyway. And, but they, these things, they say, these songs were etched into their memories. They, they haven't forgotten them from childhood. They still remember them. And here's one that addresses our subject for today. One of, their, one of Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson's Sunday school songs. And the chorus went something like this. He said, come leave your house on Grumble Street and move to Sunshine Square, for that's the place where Jesus lives, and you'll be happy there. And then they translated that. And here's what they said We got the message of those courses. It wasn't necessary to master a systematic theology te- textbook to see the point. Come on now, we say that Jesus is king. Why then are our faces sad? Jesus Christ is king. Where then is our hope? Jesus Christ is king and Lord. Where is our enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus? We do need to leave our house on Grumble Street and move to Sunshine Square. That's the place where Jesus is, and we will be happy there. So I ask you this morning, beloved, where where are you living? Where are you living? Grumble Street? Always grumbling, always murmuring, always complaining, always negative, never encouraging, constantly pessimistic, et cetera, et cetera? Or, Or have you moved in, by the grace of God, to Sunshine Square? Where, listen to me now, I'm not trying to be overly simplistic here. I'm really not. But sometimes the rains of sadness come to Sunshine Square. But the inhabitants are standing on the rock of Jesus, their Lord and King. And even in sorrow, there is a well of joy from which to drink, the well of salvation which will never be taken away from you, which will never run dry. They know what Paul meant when he described believers in 2 Corinthians 16 as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Where weeping sometimes comes in the night, but joy always comes in the morning. Where the hope of eternal gladness and the promise of every tear being wiped away fuels a thankful heart no matter what's happening, living joyfully under the reign of King Jesus, our Lord, whom we've confessed, who is also our Savior. Man, Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for my church family. Help us, Father, to live joyfully and gladly under the compassionate, gracious, kind, merciful Lordship of your Son. Continue to teach us what that means. And prepare us for the cost that may come with that in the not-too-distant future. May the threat of that cost not close our mouths. May we continue to confess Jesus as Lord no matter what. And we'll trust you, Father, for the strength to do that. You've already given us the armor. Now help us to stand firm. The king is coming. The conquering king. The benevolent king. The king who crushed the serpent's head and rescued his bride. He's coming. We fix our minds on things above and not on things of this earth. Help us, Lord, for our good and your glory. In the King's name we pray. Amen.